This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, March 30th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Timothy Dennis. You are listening to your public radio station, KUAF, which is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later this hour, Sylvia Pujoli is ending her broadcast work with NPR this week. She spent a few minutes yesterday talking with stations about her reporting, including us. So five minutes with Sylvia Pajoli in today's second half hour. First, the legislative session in Little Rock providing much conversation about education. Bills passed in a previous session are also framing the future of public schooling in Arkansas. A law allowing districts more flexibility in creating four-day school weeks or What's called year-round learning is affecting how some smaller schools, including Lincoln and Western Washington County, are creating school years. New research by a University of Arkansas Ph.D. student in the U of A Department of Education Reform Office for Education Policy, Kate Barnes, suggests many of the districts approving the changes are doing so for a similar reason. By far, the main reason why these districts chose to adopt these calendars was to recruit and retain teachers. The districts had a really difficult time um, with open positions. One school district mentioned they had a position that was open, I think, from March till October with no application. So they really wanted to get more teachers to apply and then stay to help their kids throughout the year. And several districts mentioned that they were getting Uh, applications for more qualified teachers, meaning they had either more years of experience or higher level of degrees, um, and that they were recruiting from neighboring districts that had a higher teacher salary as well. All right. What about those that have gone to year round? What what was the inspiration there? For the year-round calendar, the most common themes were uh, mental health of students and teachers. So, and same with the four-day calendar there, there's a lot from COVID, teacher burnout, lots of stress and things like that. But they also, um, for the year-round calendar specifically, adopted to help address issues of learning loss. There's lots of literature that shows that students might suffer learning loss over the summer from a longer break. They call it the summer slide. And by having shorter breaks, or having more frequent breaks rather, um, and a shorter break in the summer, they are helping to correct that learning loss a little bit. So the superintendents you you talked to that have gone to the four-day week, it sounds like they are attracting teachers like they wanted, but are they discovering any challenges or any unforeseen circumstances? Yes. So the biggest issues that these districts shared were, uh, first off, pre-K, at least this past year, we don't know what it's going to look like in the upcoming school year, was required to stay on a five-day schedule and the rest of the school district was on a four-day schedule. So they had high percentages of students missing that Friday because their brothers and sisters who were maybe in the K-12 were not at school. Um, and then the other issue, which was seemed like a pretty big concern from community members as they were surveying their community, was child care. But most of the superintendents in both calendar options said that it was a large concern immediately and at the beginning of the school year, but has tapered off as the school year has gone on. I wonder, any idea why they thought it had tapered off? Had had parents figured things out? Had there been other options opening? I think so. And a big piece of this is just working with the community that's with you. So I know that some were reaching out to maybe college students of colleges in the area 
students studying education and making partnerships with them to watch their students or some um, school districts worked with local churches or wrote grants for childcare. So it didn't seem to be as much of a concern later on. What were the what are the sizes of the schools making the changes, and what's the geography? Are they mostly in one part of the state, or? So we do have more information with a really nice map on our <laughs> website. So that's oep.uwork.edu. Uh, but overall, these districts are much smaller um, than the state average. So they're smaller districts. They're more rural districts. They have higher percentages of students qualifying for free and reduced price lunch. So um, that's a proxy for socioeconomic status. And they have a higher number, too, of uh, inexperienced teachers, meaning that they've only been teaching for one to three years. Mm -hmm. So they're smaller, they're more in the Delta region. And then for our year-round calendars, they are mostly on uh, the border following the Mississippi. What about costs? D does a four-day week reduce costs for, for schools? Yeah, so that's a great question. And a lot of the Older literature points to cost savings. So the four-day week actually emerged in the 1970s as a, a solution to the oil embargo. Less school, less you know facilities cost. Uh, but none of our districts mentioned cost hmm. savings as a primary motivator. I think one district did mention it, but said that the money is that they saved is almost so small it's not. Um, it's not important, I right. guess. All right. Here's a question that you may not be able to answer. But <laughs> if if the year-round idea is to, you know, counter learning loss that can take place over the summer, which certainly makes sense to me, is there any concern at all that a three-day weekend over time would that – I mean, if you've got three days between math class – uh, yeah, and that's something that districts said that they have been working with and knowing that since they have less time being really, or less days, still the same amount of time, but being really intentional with their time and how they structure their day, how the teachers are using that time in class. But as far as outcomes, we're going to have to wait until we uh, get some more data to see uh, what that looks like and uh, if that has had an impact on that. Do you feel comfortable enough that if a superintendent or someone in a school district came to you and said, what should we think about if we're going to make a decision, that you uh, could give them an answer? Well, I obviously have a lot of thoughts <laughs> um, about it, but I think the bigger piece that superintendents need to focus on are the needs within their community. Is there going to be access for child care on the day off, or do they have partnerships uh, with people in the community to, um, to facilitate maybe some of the child care needs? Where are students go, uh, going to go? I know some superintendents mentioned that they're partnering with the local police departments to just make sure that juvenile crime rates are staying steady while the students are out of school. So it's really just the needs of all of your community. And that's should be the primary motivator for when districts are considering changing a calendar. Did you ask these superintendents about what process they went through before they implemented the changes? Yeah. So it seems like all of them really had a thoughtful process of reaching out to the community. So they, and it varied 
um, district to district, but some districts made informational YouTube videos and sent them out to parents before a um, community meeting so parents could come with questions, but they mostly had open forums and open places for parents to share concerns. And if you look at most of the districts that have adopted these calendars, there's parent um, and community frequently asked questions to help with a lot of these things. But at the end, they all surveyed and sent out surveys to communities, but then also their school communities, so your teachers and your staff, to see if they would be in support of it. And they still monitor it. Several mentioned this at the end of every year, the ones that have been using it for longer, if the feelings are positive or if they want to change back to a traditional calendar. Kay Barnes is a University of Arkansas PhD student in the University of Arkansas Department of Education Reform Office for Education Policy and talked with me earlier this month at the Carver Center for Public Radio. So to come this hour, a new edition of Sound Perimeter with Leah Uribe. This week, Leah is considering color, light, and beauty. Music included on today's Sound Perimeter later this hour. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals will host the Midland Rockhounds at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale Thursday, April 6th at 7.05 p.m. for opening night of the 2023 season. Ticket options, a full list of promotions, and more available online at nwanaturals.com. So much happening in the next 24 to 48 hours. Let me just tell you that there's an opening reception for Linda Lopez. Hold everything dear at the Wingate Art and Design Building on UAFS. If you're not familiar with her uh, creativity, her artwork, her ceramics, you should go. The opening reception, 5 to 7 tomorrow. The exhibit lasts until May 13th. Also tomorrow right here at the Carver Center for Public Radio, The Lunch Hour with Sarah Lilly. Every day, KUAF brings you trustworthy, fact-based journalism. The financial support of our listeners makes it possible. Your support puts reporters like Kyle Kellams, Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, Anna Pope, Daniel Carruth, or Timothy Dennis, where important stories are happening so you're there too. Give now for more of the stories you count on. Please go to supportkuaf.com to make your gift, or you can mail a check to KUAF at 9 South School Avenue, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. A package of crime legislation pushed by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders made its way out of an Arkansas Senate committee yesterday. The 132-page bill would require people convicted of violent crimes to serve more of their sentences before becoming eligible for parole. The bill would also provide some recidivism services to prisoners. Republican Senator Ben Gilmore called it a smart-on-crime bill. It also recognizes that our brave law enforcement officers shouldn't be required to catch the same criminals over and over again. And most importantly, I think the victims and their families deserve to not be threatened by these same violent offenders and should be able to feel safe again in their communities and their homes. Gilmore said the bill includes a positive point system for people recently released from prison. He was questioned during the meeting about the cost of recidivism programs, which he ballparked at several million dollars. Democrat Senator Stephanie Flowers said there was not enough money appropriated for the new construction of a prison to accommodate the number of prisoners 
who would be forced to serve longer sentences if the bill became law. We have this bill, if it passes, that will provide for 100% service of time and 85% for certain crimes. And where would we put them if there is no such new facility? Late in the night, the bill passed the Senate Judiciary Committee and now goes to the Senate floor for a vote. Legislation that would have banned municipal and county short-term rental control failed in the Arkansas House yesterday. The bill's co-sponsor, Representative Britt McKenzie, a Republican from Rogers, made a final appeal to committee members before the vote. What this bill does do is it helps realign our state statute with our Arkansas Constitution, Arkansas Supreme Court jurisprudence, and affirms the rights of property owners in the state of Arkansas. After the defeat, lead sponsor Senator Joshua Bryan, a Republican from Rogers, responded via text that he accepts the democratic process but expects property owners barred from operating a short-term rental will utilize the courts. Eureka Springs' strict ban on short-term rentals in residential districts would have been nullified had that measure been approved. Former city official Lamont Ritchie says he's happy by the bill's defeat. No questions from the committee, a vote, and the no's were resounding, uh, and that was a shock. A survey issued this week that was conducted by the Alliance for Stronger Communities reveals a majority of Arkansas voters are concerned about the dangers unregulated short-term rentals pose to their neighborhoods. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. The new issue of the magazine is out this week, featuring a cover story on Todd Martin, who is the founder and CEO of South by Northwest Hospitality of Fayetteville. That's the ownership group behind popular restaurants Eastside Grill, Southern Food Company, and Theo's. We've also got a profile of one of the region's largest and most impactful nonprofits, the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, which will soon move to a new $22 million building in Lowell. Plus, we've got the latest residential building permit numbers, a notable commercial land sale in Lowell, a new business venture for angel investor and startup advisor Paige Jernigan, and guest commentary from Mark Zweig. All of those stories and more are in the latest issue. You can read the digital version for free at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield for more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Arkansas State Bank Commissioner Susanna Marshall is keeping an eye on the national banking turmoil of the past few weeks surrounding the failure of Silicon Valley Bank of California, Signature Bank of New York. 
In a recent interview with Roby Brock, Marshall explained aspects of the instability and its potential trickle-down effect on the Arkansas banking sector. I have not spent a significant amount of time analyzing uh, what has happened to either one of those institutions, but I have glanced at the publicly available data, read and followed some of the national news media around it, and it appears that they certainly over time developed concentrations and business practices that what I would say are outside the normal traditional model for a community bank and uh, that we have here in Arkansas, per se, for example. We believe that, you know, when you look at some individual bank business models, there are areas which are not as often as diversified. And it appears that at least both of these institutions had more concentration in certain types of deposit customers or loan customers. And when those sectors became pressured or had issues of their own, uh, then there was almost a spiral, if you will, because as they became pressured and uh, the banks were trying to meet their needs of those types of customers, they were unable to do so largely because valuations were declining in their bond portfolios. And when they went to liquidate it, there was not enough cash to meet those needs. And hence, uh, a, unfortunately, a traditional run on deposits at, at those institutions. Too many eggs in one basket is how we often describe that. Um, I think that's an excellent summary, yes. All right. So twofold question for you here. What's the potential danger or result for the national banking system? And then I also want you to speak to, uh, I think, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, the um, the the consistency and the lack of danger for the Arkansas state banking system. So certainly, I think uh, the industry as a whole, I think the danger of those two failures on the industry as a whole and across the national, at the national level, um, puts out a sense and feel of perhaps panic, concern, instability, anxiety within our business sector, within, within the banking sector. And quite frankly, we are at one of the strongest business cycles for the banking industry uh, that we've had in many, many years. And so those failures certainly are going to create um, uh, angst or, or concern. And I think it's very important for us uh, at the local level and at the national level to ensure the public that we have a strong and stable banking sector, a strong and stable financial system. And our job is to ensure the safety and soundness of that financial system. I think the impact of those events over the last couple of weeks um, have really risen uh, concerns that um, we have not seen for many years in this country because we have had a period of very strong uh, economic activity. Where we are today, certainly, uh, is that there's so many pressures on our economy. We have the inflation. We have a rising rate environment. We certainly have, um, you know, many types of uh, impacts to uh, the, the uh, economy as a whole. But we are resilient, and the financial system is resilient, both nationally and here in Arkansas. What we want to focus on specifically is that community banks, by and large, stick to very traditional business models. They stick to serving their communities, serving their customers in those communities, and have very core uh, types of uh, deposit and lending activities. In Arkansas, you know, as we're monitoring our institutions over the last couple of weeks, 
we are not seeing where there's been any impact from the national events to what's happening here at our state. We are talking with our bankers. They're reaching out to us. We're evaluating closely uh, the industry as a whole, as are my counterparts, state and federal across the country. And so I feel like we have reached a little bit more of a period of um, stabilization. And I believe that that trend is going to continue. You know, the key thing for most of your viewers uh, to understand and all of our public, quite frankly, is that you need to have confidence in your bank. And we need to have confidence in the banking industry. And there's every reason to have that confidence. Regulators did flag some problems with, particularly with Silicon Valley Bank, from what I have read, uh, as far back as 2019. You are a state bank regulator. When when you when you oversee these banks and the the audits and the controls that you guys have from a regulatory perspective, um, you raise issues when you see things that need to be addressed. Um, how how do banks respond to that? Those issues that you raise. Uh, maybe that will help some people understand why when those issues were raised out of state, um, something didn't happen that should have. The regulators seem to have done their part, I guess is the point that I'm making. Um, speak to me what happens when when you guys raise some concerns with a bank. Well, certainly the regulatory process is robust at the state and federal level. And we work collectively with federal regulators all the time uh, to, to perform routine um, uh, you know, full, fully developed examinations of our institutions. Part of our, one of our many items that we do is evaluate all of the different aspects of an institution, their capital adequacy, their management, risk management practices, liquidity, asset quality. There's a number of areas, both financial and non-financial, that we use to evaluate and make a determination on the safety and soundness of the institution. So often, uh, you, you will identify something that is not a problem or concern, but you may want to elevate that as a potential for management and the board to address, to improve, and to enhance. And that is a very common practice. That does not mean that there are situations where the bank is operating in a deficient manner, but it's our job to point out those early indicators and those early warning signs, work with the institution to perhaps uh, encourage them to enhance and improve certain practices that is Susanna Marshall, and she's the Arkansas State Bank Commissioner. You can find that entire interview with Roby Brock over on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. In other news this week, consumer spending is robust in Benton and Washington counties, with the four largest cities reporting a nearly 14% jump in sales tax revenue. That is according to the March revenue report reflecting January sales tax activity. Mach 1 Financial Group, that's a registered investment advisor in Benton County, recently relocated its office from Bentonville to an office building at 1001 South 52nd Street in Rogers. David Lee is the company's founder and CEO. Mach 1 has four financial advisors and nearly $300 million in assets under management. And the Consumer Banking Division of J.P. Morgan Chase is hiring for its second and third branches that are expected to open later this year in Northwest Arkansas. Chase Bank recently opened its first regional branch at 608 West Dixon Street in downtown Fayetteville. You can find all of those stories and more online at nwabusinessjournal.com where you can follow our reporting each and every day. 
I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. It's time for a survey of live music we can see and hear over the next several days. Our guide, as always, Timothy Dennis. Let's start with tomorrow night. All right. George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is welcoming Hayes Carl back to Fayetteville. Uh, Arkansas native. He's got quite the strong following. I would call him sort of alt-country. Yeah, I think that's apt. Yeah. Tickets are $25 in advance. They go up to $27 at the door. That show does have a sellout risk, so I would advise you to get them while you can. Very good advice. They are $25 in advance. Go up to $27 at the door. Gets underway at 9.30 tomorrow night at George's in Fayetteville. Happening elsewhere in Fayetteville tomorrow night, JJ's Live in North Fayetteville is going to have the Indiana-based indie folk band Houndmouth in the house. Mr. Arkansas, he's gonna kill us all. A gold chain, an open flame, and a can of aerosol. And when you say North Fayetteville, that's the one that's the former JBG. Right, right. Tickets are $25 in advance, go up to $30 at the door. That gets underway at 7.30 tomorrow night, again at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Over in West Fayetteville, 612 Coffee House is going to have the smooth funk sounds of Brian Reading in the house. All right. going to be joined on that set with Mike Matz and Chris Arcana. That gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, again at 612 Coffee House in West Fayetteville. Okay, getting out of Fayetteville tomorrow night. Chelsea's in Eureka Springs is going to have a couple of local bands on their stage. Monk is King is going to bring the funk, while Sky Pollard will bring the folk. Fun. You have to make me this way. It's underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Chelsea's in Eureka Springs. Also in Eureka Springs tomorrow night, one of your favorite singers, okay. Carter Sampson, is going to be us. <gasps> Where? At the Gravel Bar. She's joined on that set with Joe Mack. What is this? This is Friday night, again, at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs. Gets underway at 7 o'clock. Tomorrow night? Tomorrow night. Oh, my goodness. You may you may get a chance to see the Queen of Oklahoma. Oh, my goodness. I love Carter Sampson I, so much. I, 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 I wish our listeners could see <laughs> the amount of joy that just lit into your face as soon as I said that. I haven't seen her in I don't know how long. No, she used to play in Northwest Arkansas a little bit more, but she's become so much more popular right. it's harder to get her. And here. it's kind of... Shocking that she would play a smaller stage like at the Gravel Bar. Well, I'm all for it. Okay, moving on. Also tomorrow night, down in Fort Smith, Temple Live is going to have contemporary outlaw country artist Frank Foster in the house. Right. He's originally from Louisiana. Now she's a lover, she's a lady. She's forever, she's a friend. I just want to say that I think the song Sanctuary by Carter Sampson yeah. 
should have been a massive radio hit. It's it's just fantastic. So Frank Foster, Temple Live, Tomorrow Night in Fort Smith. Tickets start at $20. He's joined on that bill by the band Midnight South. And that gets underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night again at Temple Live in Fort Smith. Okay, moving ahead to Saturday JJ's Live in Fayetteville is going to have a rap show featuring the touring artist Bryce Mind. Hey baby, waste your time with me in California. He's joined on that set by Arkansas-born but now LA-based artist Black Party. Cover for that is $25 in advance, goes up to $30 at the door. Starts at 7.30 Saturday night again at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Also in Fayetteville, a milestone that I'm really happy about, the start of Kingfish's patio season. Here we go. Uh, All right. For this opening concert, they are having Chucky Wags and the Company of Rags. Whispering in my ear. I look over It seems like they disappear Also having Shiloh Molina and the Honky Tonk Flame. And that's a great show. That is a great show. Gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night again at Kingfish in Fayetteville. Up in Bentonville Saturday night, Meteor Guitar Gallery is going to have an album release show for the local band Tower of Music. They're joined on that bill by the bands Proto Hive and The Keys. The Keys will have a Black Sabbath tribute set. Cover is $10 in advance, goes up to $15 at the door, gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night, again at Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville. Over in Eureka Springs Saturday night, Amy Grant is going to be at the auditorium. That's right. Tickets start at $55. That starts at 7.30 Saturday night, again at the auditorium in Eureka Springs. That's right, Saturday is April. Saturday is April 1st. No fooling. No fooling, right. Also Saturday night, down in Fort Smith, Majestic is going to have a country show featuring Texas artist Josh Ward. Been hopelessly addicted to the pain surrounding me And I've been lonesome And I've been so Joined on that bill by the Joe Stam Band. Tickets are $12 in advance, goes up to $15 at the door, starts at 7.30 Saturday night, again at Majestic in Fort Smith. Also happening Saturday, as we heard on yesterday's show, Shoren Cockrum will be playing the next show at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. They ask for a $10 donation at the door at those shows, gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday, again at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. Okay, moving ahead to Sunday. George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is going to have a local psychedelic and rock show featuring the bands Ted Hammock and the Campaign and Green Acres. Cover for that show is $8. Gets underway at 8 o'clock Sunday, again at George's in Fayetteville. And then Monday night at George's in Fayetteville, they're going to have a show featuring Caitlin Rose. She's an indie pop artist. Ooh, you get that you want. 
She's joined on that bill by local artist Justin Peter Hinkle Schuster, who we love. We love him. We've had him in the studio yes. a few times. Tickets are $10 in advance to go up to $15 at the door. That's at 8 o'clock Monday night, again at George's in Fayetteville. And then one more show next week to let you know about. On Wednesday, JJ's Live is going to have Third Eye Blind on the stage. Tickets for that show are $39.50 in advance. Go up to $44.50 at the door. Gets underway at 7.30 next Wednesday at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Julie Cooper's Venus in Sunlight Gray, a single released on Signum Classics on March 7th, 2023, in celebration of International Women's Day. This piece for piano, strings, and voice was inspired by the Italian Renaissance painting The Birth of Venus by Sandro Botticelli, one of the most famous paintings in the world. Venus, the Roman goddess of love and beauty, is centered in the painting, naked, ethereal, and full of light. British composer Julie Cooper brings those qualities to her piece as an invitation to simplicity and invocation of the essence of sound and beauty.
that was the Oculus Ensemble performing Venus in Sunlight Grey, a piece by British composer Julie Cooper, recently released on Signum Classics in celebration of women. Iris, the Greek goddess of the rainbow, took messages from Mount Olympus to Earth and from gods to mortals or other gods using the rainbow as her stairway. In English, we use the word iridescent to describe the glowing, shifting and colorful quality of a rainbow as found in opal, a butterfly wing or the mother of pearl that lines an oyster shell. Argentinian composer Adriana Verdier plays with the word in Spanish iridescente, iridescent, when she composed her piece Tangoescente for Woodwind Quintet. Tangoescente is a piece that reimagines the tango using the glowing colors of the flute, oboe, clarinet, French horn, and bassoon. This piece, recorded in 2018 by my own chamber music ensemble, the Lyric Quintet, Quotes Astor Piazzolla's Oblivion will bring in the instruments and their traditional and modern techniques to reflect the sound and glow of traditional tango. In a recent journal review of the Lyric Quintet's album, Bruce Creditor says, quote, Verdier has written a sensuously slow and graceful work capturing the essence of the tango for the concert hall. A few extended instrumental techniques add fresh timbers and percussive interest. Thank you. 
Argentinian composer Adriana Verdi's Tango Esente, performed by my own group, the Lyric Quintet, resident woodwind chamber ensemble at the University of Arkansas, from the 2018 album Arrival and Departures, Music of the Americas. Today in Sound Perimeter, we explored colors, light, and beauty, as portrayed in pieces by composers Julie Cooper and Adriana Verdier. I hope you enjoy the brilliance and glow of today's music and of our future composers and their inspirations. This is Lia Uribe, Associate Professor and Chair of the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pentimeter, a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. Sound Pentimeter is written and hosted by me and produced by Timothy Dennis, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. Tomorrow on Ozarks, Hugh Grant and Chris Pine team up for a new Dungeons and Dragons-inspired movie. Courtney Lanning has seen a preview and gives us a review tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. Walton Arts Center is proud to present the 2023-24 Procter & Gamble Broadway series, including the Arkansas premiere of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, plus Jagged Little Pill, Disney's Aladdin, and more. Subscriptions on sale now and subscribers get early access, discounted tickets, and other benefits. More information at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callens. And I'm Timothy Dennis. We've listened to Sylvia Pajoli's reporting for NPR for more than 40 years. From her base in Rome, she's covered wars, papal tours, elections, the environment, and more. Sylvia Pajoli is ending her time with NPR this week, and she spent part of the past two days speaking with NPR stations, including us. There is a Fayetteville connection of sorts. Born in Rhode Island, she grew up in Massachusetts and earned a Fulbright scholarship that took her to Italy. I was planning, uh, I, had st I had studied Italian literature and call it Romance Languages and Literature, and I planned to do some research here. On, um, on a certain kind of Italian theater, it's Commedia del Latte. What, what happened though, it was um, the late 60s before you were born. And you may have heard that it was, there was a lot of turmoil those years. There were student protests in the US and in Europe. And in, uh, in Italy, the universities were occupied until throughout, through most of 1969 even. So uh, there, 
I didn't go study anywhere. Uh, <laughs> and uh, basically, I, I got a political education taking part in a lot of uh, protest demonstrations of my own here, here in the city, here in Rome. I'm thinking about your career as a broadcaster, and I'm wondering what changed for you when you would travel from the earliest days of your career to the latter? Would, you know, what was the equipment that you might have used 30 or years ago compared to more recently? Well, that's it's very interesting because I, I, I sort of opened up some drawers the other day and I can say that in my office, you have an electronic graveyard. There are pieces of equipment that I don't even remember what uh, what uh, what they were for. Uh, there's been a huge change. I started with um, uh, cassette tapes. I had um, uh, a Sony. Uh, and then they, they, they was a little, now thinking about it, it was very heavy. Um, we didn't have I, my very first stage. I don't even think I even had computers. I had, I had a typewriter and, um, and, and now we have incredibly, you know, much lighter. We have more equipment, but it's smaller and, uh, and, and, but there's more pieces it seems to me now, but uh, everything's much lighter, but there's more of it, I think. You covered so many different things. You had this wonderful sort of, uh, you know, general uh, 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 coverage and this ability to cover so much from war to papal visits to the corners of everyday life. I'm just curious, over the course of all this reporting, did your, I don't know, thinking or attitude towards humanity ever alter? Well... Yeah, a little uh, covering covering the the wars of Yugoslavia. I certainly, you know, our education in most of our education, we're taught, you know, that basically humankind makes progress and things get better. We move forward. Everything gets, you know, that there's an improvement in life. Well, the wars of Yugoslavia uh, really disabused me of that um, that concept because it seemed to me that it was just such a reversal to almost, uh, you know, uh, ancient hatreds and, 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 and ethnic strife that made, that made the sense of um, progress of humankind uh, no, no longer so, not, not always true. And so that was, that was definitely a change in my attitude. I mean, I don't feel it so much now as, you know, generally speaking, but while I was covering that war, I certainly did. So much of your reporting was from places that many of us haven't been and might not ever be. Did you ever think about your role as a liaison explaining other parts of the world to people who haven't been there and, and haven't experienced it? Well, yeah, that's certainly part of the, our job, definitely. And if you, you, if you're telling, you, you're trying to tell, explain to uh, an, uh, an, our, an, in our case, an American audience, what's happening in one of these obscure places, you have to, you have to explain, you have to explain a little bit the history and uh, otherwise, you know, you, you, there's, why should they care about what's happening there if you don't understand, if you don't explain a little bit the context and the background and, and what implications it can have on the rest of us economically or politically or whatever. I once interviewed Roy Reed from The New York Times who covered the civil rights movement, and he would have to file, you know, in the 50s and 60s on the fly. And he remembered having to climb up a telephone pole once to try to get the story in. I'm sure when you're reporting from across the globe, there have been challenges with getting a story to NPR. Any that stick out for you? Oh, many. When we when um, 
I remember the first time I was in Kosovo, long before the war broke out, but it, it was still very tense. Uh, there was only one hotel that all the journalists could stay at, and there were no there were no phones in the room. There was just one phone at the at the desk at the front desk, and so we had to get in line, each of us, and uh, file. And it was interesting. Sometimes I would see reporters listening to the other reporters <laughs> and take notes, and <laughs> but basically, when it came to my turn, I had to then unscrew the phone to be able to put the alligator clips in to fi- to file. Uh, the sound and that would just throw everybody into a state of frenzy. What are you doing? Destroying the phone. And so, yeah, no, it wasn't, that happened to me several times in different places. Uh, Also in, uh, in Rome once when I, I I was in a, in a cafe and I had to unscrew the phone. It was, we don't even have phones like that now. It's, it's very, very different now. It's much easier now. We think of um, life in chapters. So what's the next chapter? Oh, basically, I just want to, I want to, first thing, I just want to change a little bit my pace. Uh, I want to read long novels. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of writing a book. Uh, I'm going to have to do a lot of research. Um, But the basic idea is to change my pace, my daily pace of life. Sylvia Pajoli talked with us yesterday. She ends her broadcast reporting duties with NPR this week. KUAF spring fundraiser is coming up and it will sound a little different. This year, we're shortening our live on-air fundraiser from five days to three and asking you to give early so we can go live April 5th with as much money raised as possible. When you want to hear important, insightful, and intelligent reporting, you turn to KUAF. When you want to dive into an important issue, you turn to KUAF. When you want intelligent conversation about a complicated issue, you turn to KUAF. This spring, KUAF is turning to you. Make your gift now and support everything you get from KUAF. Give now at supportkuaf.com or mail a check to the station at 9 South School Avenue in Fayetteville. Thank you. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Middleton. Timothy produced today's show and today's sound perimeter, both inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors today included Leah Uribe, Paul Gatling, and Roby Brock. Jacqueline Froelich contributed sound and news from the Arkansas legislature, as did our colleagues at KUAR Public Radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. Additional content today came from Anna Pope. I'm Timothy Dennis. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's most recent CD, available wherever you get music, is titled Still Here. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening. All right, Timothy, we've got uh, the lunch hour back in the building tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a few months. It has, because we did it at the town center and at the library right so it feels like spring it does all right thank you so much for listening we're back tomorrow at noon and seven please be well